Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. You must remember me. A kiss is just a kiss. A smile of the Welcome. To another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another tale in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. The episodes in this series have all been inspired by suggestions made by our listeners on our forum, which you can find at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Jeffrey Lee Blake suggested an episode on Hollywood fixers, like the one played by Liev Schreiber in the TV show Ray Donovan. MGM's version of a fixer was Eddie Mannix, who joined the studio near its inception and was on the payroll until his death in 1963. Eddie Mannix is also the name of the fictionalized studio fixer character played by Josh Brolin in the upcoming film from the Coen brothers, Hail Caesar. I haven't seen that film yet, but I can tell you that the real Eddie Mannix's life and work were pretty nuts. Mannix, who was written off as a gangster by some and embraced as the only honest man in Hollywood by others— had a confirmed or suspected hand in covering up both everyday misdemeanors like car wrecks and pregnancies, and also some of the most horrible scandals in the history of Hollywood. At the same time, as MGM's comptroller and general manager, it was Mannix's job to keep the studio financially afloat, and thus he's maybe more responsible for the longevity of MGM than any other executive. There are too many Eddie Mannix stories for a single episode, but today we'll touch on Mannix's beginnings at a New Jersey amusement park, his transformation from spy against Louis B. Mayer to the MGM patriarch's closest colleague, his involvement in a rape scandal and the first celebrity sex tape scandal, and his very complicated personal life. Join us, won't you? For the MGM story of Eddie Mannix, Studio Fixer. Mm-hmm. 
Many of the men who became the first generation of movie moguls were first or second generation immigrants who hadn't finished school, who for the most part had other businesses which they abandoned or adapted when it became clear that the fields of film exhibition and production were open markets in which smart entrepreneurs could really clean up. Within this climate, it really wasn't that weird that a former New Jersey carnival worker became the secret muscle behind MGM's self-sustaining alternate society. Eddie Mannix's relationship with the powers that were at MGM dated back to the early 19-teens. Mannix, born in Fort Lee, New Jersey, had dropped out of school as a preteen to go to work. When he was 20, he was hired at Palisades Park, an amusement park which had recently been purchased by the Realty Trust Company, an entity controlled by Nick and Joseph Skank, the brothers behind the Lowe's Corporation. Before Mannix was a fixer, he was a builder. He worked as a jack-of-all-trades on the park's construction crew, and then he was placed in the ticket booth. And from there, Nick Skank promoted Mannix to bookkeeper. He was reportedly more of a bookmaker, helping the Skanks fudge the accounting of their cash business. From there, Mannix became a kind of all-purpose heavy, solving problems within the park and behind the scenes. By the middle of the next decade, when Marcus Lowe merged three smaller entities to create the studio MGM, Eddie Mannix was perhaps the most trusted member of the Skank Brothers' team. Nick Skank, who was based in New York, didn't trust that Louis B. Mayer would have the Skank family's best interests at heart. So he sent Mannix out to Hollywood, gave him the title of comptroller and assistant to Irving Thalberg, and instructed him to keep an eye on things for the corporate office. But a funny thing happened in Hollywood. Mannix and Mayer, stool pigeon and the target of his surveillance, became friends. The two men had similarly brash management styles, but they could also be softies. About both Mannix and Mare, there are many stories that make them look like bad guys. But there were also lots of people in Hollywood who loved them. As comptroller, Mannix kept a detailed ledger, noting the costs of every MGM production versus its profits. He was the first person Mayer would see every morning. They had a daily meeting at which Mannix would brief Mayer on the studio's financials. Within a year, Mannix was promoted to general manager, and it was his signature that marked all official interstudio communication as official. Titles aside, at MGM, Mannix quickly settled into a role similar to the one he had held at the amusement park, that of all-around fixer. He worked in tandem with MGM's head of publicity, Howard Strickling, a dapper former journalist who controlled how the press reported on MGM's stars and films. Strickling made sure that scandals didn't make the papers, which often meant giving reporters an alternate story to print, and probably also giving them a story about some other star as misdirection. Meanwhile, Mannix made sure that the scandals themselves went away. So while Strickling distracted the media, it was Mannix who arranged to get unruly stars out of the drunk tank, who made sure to pay off the victims of their car accidents and fistfights, who arranged abortions. When he couldn't scare a star straight himself, Mannix would call in an old friend from New Jersey, i.e. a gangster, to deliver the message for him. He'd read every telegram sent or received through the studio, including personal messages sent by stars. This was one way the executives could stay on top of any trouble brewing so that they could plan how to respond to a scandal before it happened 
or even prevent it from happening. Though Mannix developed close friendships with some stars, for instance, he was almost like family to Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy, he could also be extremely unforgiving of the stars under his watch. He had a sign on his desk reading, The only star at MGM is Leo the Lion. One of Mannix's most persistent cases had to do with a very early version of a celebrity sex tape scandal. By the time Lucille Lesseur signed with MGM in 1925 and began transforming herself into Joan Crawford, she had allegedly starred in at least one pornographic movie, which biographer David Brett claims was called Velvet Lips and which Crawford's FBI file later confirmed featured Crawford in compromising positions. In the late 1920s, when rumors about the existence of this film started to get a little too loud for MGM's tastes, Mannix was put on the case of trying to track down the film to destroy it. At some point, after collecting a number of prints, Mannix found the negative and used MGM funds, 100,000 of them, to buy it and have it destroyed. When Crawford left MGM in 1943, she paid the studio $50,000 to release her from her contract. Some have conjectured that this was hush money to ensure that Mannix would keep the existence of Velvet Lips under wraps. As you might guess, much MGM scandal policing had to do with maintaining the illusion of the sanctity of Hollywood marriages. But Mannix himself was completely incapable of maintaining the sanctity of his own marriage. Mannix had wed Bernice Frumis, a nice Irish girl from his hometown of Fort Lee, way back in the carnival days. Bernice was well aware that her husband had never been faithful to her, but she was Catholic, and at least he kept most of his dalliances to one-night stands. But in the mid-1920s, Mannix found a keeper. Mary Imogene Robertson had danced for the Ziegfeld Follies under the name Imogene Bubbles Wilson until she was forced to flee New York when her affair with married comedian Frank Tinney got to public. In 1924, Tinney found out Bubbles had been unfaithful, and the married man beat his mistress to within an inch of her life. Bubbles tried to have Tinney arrested, and though reports vary as to what exactly happened next, we know Bubbles was fired from the Ziegfeld Follies and was forced to flee to Europe in order to work, and Tinney remained a free man. By 1927, Bubbles was under contract to United Artists under the name Mary Nolan, and her and Mannix's relationship got serious. Nolan would later claim that she and Mannix were all but living together at the Ambassador Hotel for nearly four years. At first, Mannix helped Nolan get work at MGM. She appeared opposite Lon Chaney and Lionel Barrymore in the 1928 jungle romance West of Zanzibar and in John Gilbert's final silent film, Desert Nights. Nolan was blonde and slightly exotic-looking. Her image and the types of films she was cast in, including the universal B-movie Shanghai Lady, suggests that she might have become sort of a precursor to Marlena Dietrich. 
But Nolan's film career was over by 1932. Being Eddie Mannix's mistress meant showing up to work with black eyes and bruises. In the middle of 1929, when Mannix tried to break off the affair, Nolan threatened to tell his wife everything. Mannix then reportedly beat Mary Nolan so severely that she was taken to the hospital unconscious. Nolan spent months recovering, and she alleged that Mannix beat her again while she was in the hospital, and on at least two other occasions between 1931 and 1933. Various reports say Nolan had between 15 and 20 operations, resulting from abdominal troubles caused by these beatings. After her first long hospital stay, she became addicted to morphine, In 1935, Nolan sued Mannix, alleging that his beatings and his efforts behind the scenes had prevented her from being able to work as an actress, thus destroying her livelihood. While Strickling fought the lawsuit in the newspapers, so that even articles that detailed Nolan's complaints with some sympathy also noted her checkered past as an adulteress who had cycled through a few pseudonyms to escape her sexual history— Mannix handled Nolan in his own way. He had an LAPD detective threaten to ring her up on charges of drug possession if she continued to pursue her lawsuit. She could stay out of jail only if she dropped the charges and left L.A., which she did. She later returned to L.A. and lived in obscurity until her death from liver disease in 1948 at the age of 43. With Mary Nolan out of the picture, Eddie Mannix's life went back to normal. At this point, Mannix was the number three man at MGM, behind only Mayer and Thalberg. Thalberg would bring Mannix with him to union meetings, where the former bouncer would stand around silently, cracking his knuckles, and by contrast, make veins of ice Irving look like a nice guy. He went back to short-lived relationships with random women, many of them wannabe actresses who were in it for some promised or implied quid pro quo. There's no evidence that any of Mannix's girls ever became big stars, but then most of the women who came to Los Angeles looking for stardom didn't find it. Some of them ended up working for Lee Francis, a madam who ran a massive house of very high-end ill repute out of an apartment building on Sunset Boulevard, across the street from the Sunset Tower Hotel. Francis's girls were paid $1,000 a week, more than most contract starlets, four times more than what Howard Hughes paid Jean Harlow when she was under contract to him. Both Hughes and Harlow were rumored patrons of Francis's house. As the legend goes, the actress would go shopping for one-night stands in the lobby where men would wait their turn. A more likely tale has Irving Thalberg sitting in that lobby, sipping coffee and reading the newspaper while waiting for friends like John Gilbert or employees like Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy to emerge from their assignations. Lee Francis's house was an important part of the way Hollywood men let off steam, and it was completely integral to the way the studio entertained important out-of-town clients. Eventually, a more private satellite location was launched in the Hollywood Hills. 
Mays was run by Billy Bennett, a Mae West lookalike, and she hired women who bore a natural resemblance to other famous female stars, such as Joan Crawford and Carol Lombard, and had them made up in costumes so that the resemblance would become uncanny. Who knows how much agency the employees of Mays or the House of Francis actually had over their work or their lives, but at least there was some kind of transparency about the services they were expected to perform as part of their job. For many young women in Hollywood, the rules and the expectations weren't so clear, and the compensation was minimal or non-existent. Of all the scandals that Mannix had a hand in fixing, from Garbo's lesbian relationships to the probably gangster-related murder of actress Thelma Todd, to the cover-up of a Clark Gable car accident for which at least one book argues John Huston was made to take the fall— Perhaps the biggest potential problem Mannix was involved in covering up was the story of Patricia Douglas. It started in May 1937. After a year that had encompassed tragedy, including the death of Irving Thalberg, and also triumphs like the major hits Mutiny on the Bounty and the Great Ziegfeld, the MGM boys planned an annual sales convention to end all annual sales conventions. In advance of a five-day conference in Culver City, the men who sold MGM's movies on the East Coast boarded a private MGM rail car for the cross-country ride, and they spent the three-day trip pre-gaming. Louis B. Mayer himself, and a crowd of hired young ladies, greeted the drunken salesmen at the train station in Pasadena. These lovely girls, and you had the finest of them, Greek you, Mayor said. And that's to show you how we feel about you and the kind of a good time that's ahead of you starting tonight. The festivities for the salesmen included dinner at the Ambassador Hotel, a luncheon with stars like Harlow, who would be dead in a month, Gable and Crawford, and finally, a party at Hal Roach's ranch, which MGM was calling the Wild West Show. Held on Wednesday, May 5th, 1937, the convention's schedule promised a stag affair out in the wild and woolly west where men are men. As a teenager, Patricia Douglas had danced in the chorus line behind Ginger Rogers in the Busby Berkeley musical Gold Diggers of 1933. By 1937, Douglas was 20, living with her mother, and not working regularly in films. When she answered the casting call requesting that she show up at MGM at 4 p.m. on May 5th, Patricia assumed she was going in for background work in a movie. She later said that if she had known that she was being cast for a private party, she never would have gone. On the MGM lot, Patricia and the other girls were given cowgirl outfits, which showed plenty of leg, and full camera-ready hair and makeup. Then they were bussed the location. They were promised $7.50 for a day's work, plus a meal. It wasn't until the 300 salesmen and MGM executives arrived that the women realized that they had been hired to provide a female element at a party to which all of the invited guests were men. The open bar held 300 cases of scotch and champagne to serve 300 invitees. After a few hours, any inhibitions that the male guests had walked in with had vanished. One waiter at the event 
reported watching the hired girls trying to evade men who, quote, were attempting to molest them. At some point, Patricia found herself dancing with David Ross, a 36-year-old from the Chicago office. She excused herself after their dance and complained to the bathroom attendant that she didn't know what to do about this guy, who she called an annoying creep doing his best to cop a feel. When Patricia emerged from the bathroom, David Ross was waiting for her. As she remembered it, Ross and another man held her down and poured liquor down her throat. She managed to break free, and she went back to the bathroom to throw up, and then made her way outside of the party to get some air. But Ross hadn't given up. He found her outside the banquet hall. He dragged her to a car and threw her into the back seat, where, according to Patricia, he raped her. When Patricia started to black out, David Ross slapped her. He said, I want you awake. When David Ross was finished, Patricia Douglas stumbled out of the car, screaming. She was taken to the Culver City Hospital, which, like the Culver City Police Department, was essentially a satellite of MGM. The doctor who examined Douglas said he could find no evidence of intercourse, and Douglas was taken home in an MGM car. She spent the next two days in shock and then went back to the Roach Ranch. She tried to tell the cashier what had happened to her. The cashier gave Douglas her $7.50 salary. Patricia Douglas probably wasn't the first person forced to have sex with a movie studio employee. It's possible she wasn't the only person in that situation that night. But she was the first person to attempt to use the legal system to call out a studio for letting this kind of thing happen. Douglas filed a complaint against Ross with the Los Angeles district attorney. She probably didn't know that the district attorney was a close friend of Louis B. Mayer, who had been the top donor to his campaign. When the DA did nothing, Douglas found a scrappy lawyer named William J.F. Brown, who advised her to tell her story to the press. That backfired. On June 4th, the LA Times ran with a story about a, quote, wild film party. They published Douglas's picture and address and never mentioned MGM. But the DA finally showed Douglas a lineup of photos of men who had been at the event, and without hesitation, she pointed to David Ross's face. MGM went into damage control mode. In some sense, this was what Eddie Mannix had spent his entire career to this point practicing for. Even if Douglas couldn't prove that she had been raped, and that would have been very difficult to prove, given that at the hospital, the first thing they did was ask her to douche, the idea of a wild, booze-soaked, all-butt orgy was bad for MGM's public image as a factory for family films, and for the studio's private relationship with its corporate parent. So Mannix hired detectives to dig up dirt on Douglas. When they couldn't find any, other girls who had been at the party were encouraged to give statements about how Patricia Douglas, who never drank, was in fact an incorrigible drunk. The DA convened a grand jury, and Ross was forced to come from Chicago to appear. In the courthouse, Ross's lawyer pointed at Douglas and said, Look at her. Who would want her? 
Witnesses who had previously given statements in support of Douglas would not repeat that testimony on the stand. The grand jury did not indict David Ross. So Douglas filed a civil suit against Mannix, Ross, Roach, casting assistant Vincent Conniff, and, quote, John Doe 1-50 to for, quote, their unlawful conspiracy to defile, debauch, and seduce her and other dancers for the immoral and sensual gratification of male guests. MGM's lawyers stalled the case until 1938, when it was dismissed by the Los Angeles Superior Court. So Douglas refiled in federal court, but her lawyer betrayed her. Determined to challenge the DA for his seat, William J.F. Brown failed to appear in court on her behalf, as did MGM's lawyers. Eventually, a federal judge dismissed the case. Douglas had reached the end of her options. With her spirit broken, she gave up, which was probably MGM's strategy from the start. When asked about Douglas many years later, Mannix allegedly said, We had her killed, a quote that could have easily been taken literally because MGM had made sure that no record of Douglas or the Wild West Party would make it into their official histories. But they didn't actually kill Douglas. Maybe worse, she had to live with her trauma, knowing that a studio had effectively erased her for over 60 years, until historian David Sten put all the pieces together, tracked Douglas down, and told her story, first in an article in Vanity Fair and then in a documentary called Girl 27. Nineteen thirty-eight became a banner year for Eddie Mannix in more ways than one. Virtually as soon as the Patricia Douglas situation went away, so did his long-suffering wife. Irving Thalberg's nineteen thirty-three heart attack gave Mayer the opportunity to reorganize MGM, and in doing so, he gave Mannix even more power. Around this time, Mannix met Tony Lanier. They began a relationship not long after. Tony, whose given name was Camille, was billed by the Ziegfeld Follies as the girl with the million-dollar legs. She had come to Hollywood to be featured in MGM's film, The Great Ziegfeld. Mannix allegedly spotted Lanier at a rehearsal for the film and told an assistant to give the actress $4,500 for the day's work and have her sent straight to Mannix's office. Within weeks, Tony was living in a Hollywood apartment paid for by Eddie, and they started seeing each other not only regularly, but semi-flagrantly. Within a year, Bernice Mannix had had enough. Eddie's wife moved to Palm Springs, where she lived with his support, and Tony Lanier moved in with Eddie. For the next three years, they would live together as a married couple. And then Bernice Mannix decided to finally get a divorce. She filed a suit against her husband, alleging not just cruelty and infidelity, but also that he had given her a beating that broke her back and was now associating with other women. She was suing for property and a hefty monthly alimony payment. Before Mannix could face the woman who was quite justifiably suing him in court, Bernice Mannix died in a car accident. She was being driven home from a Palm Springs casino by the owner of the casino, and his car veered off the road and crashed, 
paralyzing the driver and killing his passenger. There were two sets of tire tracks and marks on the casino owner's car, which would have been consistent with it having been violently sideswiped by a second car. No charges were filed. Eddie and Tony resumed their lives together, apparently without remarkable incident, for the next decade and a half. Everyone started calling Tony Mrs. Mannix, although reports vary as to whether or not she and Eddie ever officially got married. Regardless, they lived as man and wife, albeit a man and wife who tolerated each other's affairs, for 14 years. Then Tony met actor George Reeves. Tony and Eddie's good friend, Jack Larson, was playing Jimmy Olsen in a new Superman TV series in which Reeves had the title role. A theater-trained actor who had spent the previous decade bouncing between studios, making tons of movies but failing to earn the really good parts, Reeves was none too thrilled to be headlining a superhero TV show. This was 1951, It would be a long time before the slates of entire movie studios and TV networks would be dominated by the very lucrative adventures of caped crusaders. Reeves' costume didn't fit him, literally, and also figuratively in that he had imagined better things for himself. On the first day of shooting, he greeted the actress playing Lois Lane by raising a cocktail and saying, "'Here's to the bottom of the barrel, babe.'" George got a lift from his personal rock bottom when Tony Mannix walked onto the Superman set. Tony and George were instantly attracted to one another, and they began an affair. Tony, who was about a decade older than her lover, called him the boy. She started visiting him on the set of Superman every day, and then they began appearing in public together. The relationship was whispered about as though it was illicit, But some reports say Mannix was not only aware of Tony's relationship with Reeves, but that he endorsed it. By then, Eddie and Tony were sleeping in separate bedrooms, on opposite ends of a red-carpeted hallway, which Tony called the Red Sea. Eddie allowed Tony to have George as a beard for his own mistress, a young Japanese woman who masqueraded as the Mannix's maid. Also, Eddie's health wasn't great and he understood that Tony was simply preparing for when he wouldn't be around anymore. Tony, and or Eddie, bought George a house and a car. The three of them vacationed together, along with Eddie's Japanese friend. Tony lived with Eddie and took care of him, but was also for all intents and purposes George Reeves' wife, and everyone believed that as soon as Eddie died, George and Tony would marry. Reeves played Superman for most of the decade, and it kept him in the public eye, if not creatively satisfied. Later, it would become standard for the film industry to try to co-opt the popular stars of TV, but at this early point in television history, when the small screen posed such a threat to the big, studios essentially blacklisted TV stars from leading man roles. Reeves tried to get his own TV show off the ground, but the only starring role anyone wanted him to do was under that cape. So he used his fame to draw attention to charities. He was very generous with his friends. He drank a lot. Meanwhile, Mannix's health worsened over the next few years, but he hung on. By 1958, he was 67 and suffering from emphysema. He no longer went into work at MGM on a daily basis, 
But if the studio needed him, he was just a phone call away. Meanwhile, Reeves was starting to lose interest in Tony. And then at a bar in New York City, George met 38-year-old socialite Leonore Lemon. Later that night, she showed up at his hotel room uninvited, toting champagne and cold chicken. How could he resist? After two weeks in New York, Leonore and George returned together to Los Angeles. George broke the news to Tony and then moved Leonore into his house in Benedict Canyon, which Tony had paid for. Tony was not happy about this turn of events. She tried everything to get her boy back, calling him dozens of times a day, trying to get her friends to intervene, to no avail. Eventually, Reeves got a lawyer to give Tony a warning to leave him alone. She still paid his ample liquor bills in hopes that he would change his mind. And no one could stop her from sitting in her parked car outside of places where she knew George would be. Over the next few months, Reeves narrowly escaped three car accidents. In all three, cars or trucks apparently tried to run him off the road, not unsimilar to the accident that killed Eddie Maddox's first wife. Then, George's beloved dog was stolen out of his car. Everyone suspected Tony was responsible. And then, Reeves got into a serious car crash. Driving down Benedict Canyon, he realized his brakes weren't working. He was thrown into the windshield when the car slammed into a pole, and he very nearly died. The mechanic who received Reeves's wrecked car observed that the brakes had been drained of fluid. Reeves was stressed and unhappy. He took pills for the pain he suffered after the accident, and kept on drinking, too. His dog was gone, and his new girlfriend spent her days sleeping and her nights partying in George's house with people he didn't know. One night in June 1959, Leonore and some acquaintances were drinking downstairs when they heard gunshots upstairs. George Reeves was found with a gunshot wound in his skull. His left eyeball was found stuck to the wall, and the bullet was found lodged in the ceiling. The death was ruled a suicide, despite the fact that detectives noted the bullet was in an odd place for a self-inflicted gunshot wound. All of the witnesses in the house told police Reeves had killed himself because he hated playing Superman, which was the only way he could make a living. But Reeves's friends and co-workers who weren't there that night believed the suicide explanation was, as Alan Ladd put it, bullshit. In an event deemed suspicious by just about everyone, at 4.30 in the morning on the night of Reeves's death, just a couple of hours after the police were called, Tony called Reeves's Superman co-star Phyllis Coates in tears and said, George is dead. He's been murdered. Reeves's mother hired Jerry Geisler, the veteran Hollywood attorney who had defended Errol Flynn and Charlie Chaplin in their rape and paternity trials, but a few weeks later, Geisler, who had been paid $50,000 already, quit, telling Reeves' mother, there are some dangerous people involved, and advising her to drop the case herself. Instead, Reeves' mother refused to have her son buried until she had an explanation for his death. Forensic evidence wasn't going to help, 
Reeves's body had been taken not to the police morgue, but directly to a funeral home where it was washed and embalmed and not tested for gunpowder residue. Some reports say the funeral home, called Gates, Kingsley, and Gates, was owned by Eddie Mannix, but I haven't been able to confirm that. Under public pressure, LAPD Chief William Parker ordered a second perfunctory autopsy, which revealed that there were unexplained bruises on Reeves's body, but still declared his bullet wound to be self-inflicted. When a suspicious sergeant then took it upon himself to go to Reeves's home and found two additional bullet holes in the floor under a carpet, Parker, who had been friendly with Mannix since the MGM glory days, refused to allow an investigation. Reeves's will left his few assets not to Leonore Lemon, the girlfriend who he was reportedly planning to marry, but to Tony Mannix, the ex-girlfriend who had paid for most of his stuff. This got the press asking questions, which Mannix, with the aid of Howard Strickling, did his best to squash. In the years since, the conspiracy racket has been divided. Some people think Tony or Eddie Mannix either killed Reeves or hired someone to do it. Some people think that if Eddie Mannix wanted George Reeves dead, he would have been dead a long time before. Others think Leonore Lemon did it, but Mannix orchestrated the suicide cover-up to protect Tony from suspicion and to prevent intrusion into his and his wife's private lives. In 2006, the story of Eddie and Tony Mannix and George Reeves was turned into a movie called Hollywoodland, starring Ben Affleck as Reeves, Diane Lane as Tony, Bob Hoskins as Eddie, and Adrian Brody as a fictional private detective who becomes obsessed with the case. The detective considers the theory that Lemon did it, and then the theory that Mannix ordered it, but in the film's ambiguous ending, he seems to believe that it was a suicide after all. Hollywood Land is a pretty good movie, and it would be a worse one if it claimed to have a solution to an unsolved and probably unsolvable mystery. After all, Hollywood movies about Hollywood always walk a fine line. You can show the simple irony of there being moral rot behind the scenes of good, clean entertainment like Superman. You can show men like Eddie Mannix, who are in charge of so much, to be pretty despicable. But ultimately, everything has to stay in the realm of the hypothetical and ambiguous, the mythology of maybe. Because tension between the known and the unknown is such a big part of Hollywood's allure. Whatever his involvement was in Reeves' death, if there was an involvement— or in the cover-up, if there was a cover-up. Afterwards, Mannix's days as a fixer were over. He died an invalid in 1963. Tony lived in Mannix's house for the next 20 years, and reportedly moved in all of the stuff she had inherited from Reeves. Friends reported that once the technology became available, she would watch episodes of Superman over and over, commenting that George was one hell of a good-looking guy. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. It was edited by Henry Malofsky. And our research intern is Allison Gemmel. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, you must remember this podcast.com. At our website, you'll also find our forum where you could submit ideas for future episodes, and you'll find show notes for every episode. 
The show notes also include a list of sources that were used in the research process for each episode. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can tweet about it. Our Twitter handle is at RememberThisPod. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and please rate and review us there. And you can also find it on Stitcher and many other places where podcasts are found. Years 94 and my trunk is raw. And my rear view mirror is the motherfucking law. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Son, do you know I'm stopping you I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know Am I under arrest or should I get some more? Well, you was doing 55 and this is 54 uh-huh. Losses of registration and step out of the car You carrying a weapon on you, I know a lot of you are I ain't stepping out of shit, all my paper's legit Well, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? bit? My glove compartment is locked, so it's the trunk in the back